I'm going to read from. Uh, I'm going to read the passage that we've been reading over and over again the last few weeks. This is December. This is Advent. We are leading up to uh, Christmas, and so as we approach Christmas, we want to approach it with the same heart that uh, God intended for His people approaching the arrival of Jesus. God didn't just pop Jesus in out of nowhere, surprise, but He set it all up. He communicated to His people. He wanted people to know. And then when Jesus did come, of course, you have the, you have the herald angels as beautiful. God wanted people to know Jesus was coming, Jesus is here, and Jesus still lives eternally. So if you want to read along, um, it's Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. If you've been here the last three weeks, you can probably recite it, uh, but I won't put that pressure on you. Let's read Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 together. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isn't that beautiful? This is clearly and simply a, what we call a messianic prophecy. Um, by the time Jesus was born, people were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the promised one, the king in the line of David, who's going to ascend onto David's throne and who's going to rule an everlasting rule. And the, we, the picture we have painted here from Isaiah is that this is more than just a human king, though it is a human king. Unto us a child is born. This is definitely a human king, but also this is God. This is the wonderful counsellor. If that doesn't sound especially wonderful to you, go back two weeks. You can listen to it online. Mark preached on that, and it was wonderful. To have the most wonderful counsellor is an incredible thing. This is mighty God. Now, that is clearly a big claim, especially in a monotheistic religion, right? We only have one God. And unto us a child is born who is mighty God. Isn't that wild? Josh preached on that beautifully last week. I wasn't here last week. I went online and listened to it. Now, next week, Mark will do uh, Prince of Peace, but I get to do Everlasting Father. And there's a little bit of a, uh, a thing to get out of the way here, I guess. What's the elephant in the room in this passage when we're talking about Jesus, the Everlasting Father? Does anyone know? He's the Son. That's right. God is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so why is Jesus being called the Everlasting Father? And it, Well, we're not going to spend a lot of time there because the, the Trinity is, is a big thing. It could be a whole sermon or a whole sermon series or a you know, course at a university. Um, but Jesus revealed the Trinity uh, in his coming. He, he identified God as God the Father as the one he prays to, himself as the Son and the Holy Spirit. We do see them in the Old Testament, but largely in the Old Testament we don't see this, this separation of the persons of the Trinity. We haven't had this revelation yet. When we see God as Father in the Old Testament, it is not about this particular person of the Trinity. It's about something else. It's about God's love for us. It's about the way he relates to us. And this love is shared by Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So, that's all we're going to spend on the Trinity, all right? <laughs> I know some people want it to be like a whole sermon on the Trinity, but it's a, it's a sermon on 
everlasting father. So, um, you know, there's that. I was spending a lot of time not looking at my notes, and so I'm making sure I'm not missing anything now. Um, all right. It is important to us, and it reveals something to us, that God is identified here, that Jesus is identified here as everlasting Father. It is a relational thing. It is a beautiful thing. And I think I can illustrate it. Um, yeah. Okay. In 2016, this movie came out called Arrival. Who's seen Arrival? It's pretty good, hey? That's a great movie. Um, I'm, I'm really anti-spoiler. I would never tell you what happens in the middle, in the, at the end of a movie. I wouldn't even tell you what happens in the middle of a movie. I don't want you to not enjoy it. I will tell you what happens at the beginning of this movie, just the first two minutes. Um, it's, just, it's just some setting, sets the scene for the story that happens afterwards. But I, I think it is helpful uh, for illustrating uh, today. In the first two minutes, we meet the main character. She becomes a mother. She has this beautiful daughter. And we have this montage of her, the daughter growing up, their relationship with each other. They delight in each other. They have their ups and downs. They have their arguments. And then at about 12 years old, the daughter uh, falls sick and passes away. And I remember watching this movie, and I understood what I was seeing. I felt compassion for the mother. And I was like, okay, what's the story doing here? They're establishing this, this terrible burden that the main character has. Maybe this will inform her fears over the course of the movie. Maybe it will inform her decisions. Maybe it will shape who she is or be something for her to overcome or something like that. I don't know. Let's watch the movie and find out. But then this year, I went to watch the movie again. I didn't actually go to watch the movie again. I went to do something else, and I just put it on in the background while I was on my computer. And <laughs> that's not weird, right? <laughs> it's on Netflix, so it wasn't costing me anything. <laughs> but before I knew it, I was curled up on my computer chair weeping uncontrollably. I was, I'd call it wailing, except I was stifling the noise so that my <laughs> wife wouldn't want like, I've just gone to the computer room to play a video game, right? What's going on? Um, I was shaking, and I was like, what is going on? I felt for her in a different way that I didn't the first time. It was, oh, it was, I was such a mess. What do you think happened between the first viewing and the second viewing? I became a dad. <laughs> it changed me. When I was a kid, mum and I, she's right here, we would argue, right? I love you more. No, I love you more. <laughs> and she... <laughs> and she would settle the debate with, no, you don't understand, you can't understand, but one day, if you have kids, you will. I understand. When I became a dad, I discovered a love that was somehow more precious than I imagined, more protective. I discovered a desire to carve out this space for my son in the world where he would always be in my care. And this was brand new to me. And it didn't just shape how I respond to stories about 
mothers and daughters, fathers and sons, or any parent-child relationship. It shaped how I understood stories of God's love for his people. I think it's because of that experience that when I opened the Jesus Storybook Bible to read a story to my kids, I usually delegate to my wife, actually, because I can't get through a story without breaking down in tears. <laughs> the beauty of God's love for his children. How wonderful it is to be called his children, to be in his perfect care, that he delights in us, that he enjoys us, that he made us to belong to him. Man. God's a very relational God, and we learn about how God relates to us um, through our relationships with each other. He's given that to us. Marriage, for example, is a beautiful picture of Jesus' relationship to the church, where the whole church is his bride. We see that come up a whole bunch of times in the Bible. Um, in Ephesians 5, in particular, uh, uh, Paul draws strong parallels between um, how wives and husbands should relate to each other and how the whole church... Um, and Jesus relate to each other. I'll never be a wife, but I experience something of wifeness with how, with the whole church, I get to relate to Jesus. Right? And I am a husband, an imperfect husband, but um, I get to... <laughs> I said imperfect, right? <laughs> A perfect husband. I said imperfect. It's written... Anyway. I'm an imperfect husband, but still I, I get to taste something of Jesus' love for the church and also this call to, with whatever authority I have in my relationship with wife, whatever power and strength I have in my relationship with, wife, with my wife, to do it all, use it all for her good, even to the point of laying down my life for her. That's the calling of every husband. And I get to taste that, that beautiful picture of Jesus' love for the church. Jesus sets the example for the husbands to follow. And our husbands get to experience something of Jesus' love for us. The wives get to experience Jesus, when a wife has a good husband, get to experience Jesus' love for the church in an intimate way. And we as a whole church get to experience what it means to be a wife to the best husband when we relate to Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? And so whether you have a good father, whether you have any father, the Bible calls God father of the orphan. Whether you have a good father or any father, God is your father if you're in Jesus. God is the best father. Isn't that so good? I get to experience something in, in my fatherhood of how uh, we can look to God when my kids look at me, there's this illusion I've created, right? This illusion of excellence. Illusion that I'm unstoppable and unbeatable. The way my kids look at me, it's not that I've gone out of my way to do that, but oh, the way my kids look at me is awesome. Let me find the stuff I've written down. I like I liked these examples. There we go, okay. In spite of the fact that I fall short, of the Father's perfection, in spite of the fact that I fall short of his, um, his goodness, his patience, his love, 
his everlastingness in and of myself. In spite of all that, they see me as powerful and unbeatable, but also warm and dependable. In their experience, I can do anything, solve anything, reach anything. I know I'm not very tall. My kids are much shorter. <laughs> I can outmuscle, outrun, outwit even my oldest, who is nearly five. Yeah. And with enough time and effort, I can separate any two pieces of Lego, no matter how small. This is astonishing to these little minds, right? When I was their age, my parents appeared just as amazing. I believe my dad when we asked him why his jeans were ripped and he said it was because he fought off a hundred pirates. <laughs> of course he could, so of course he did. Right? Have you ever heard a kid say, my, I bet my dad could beat up your dad? <laughs> the incredible favour and awe and delight that a child can have for even an imperfect father. Our God is worthy of all of that and more, isn't he? Can your dad beat up my heavenly father? No way. Isn't it a beautiful thing that God relates to us as a parent? That we get to call him everlasting father. That the absolute biggest, strongest, wisest, kindest, richest, most patient, most loving, most perfect dad ever, by a long shot, is our dad. I'm still figuring out fatherly love. God perfected it the moment he invented it. Jesus illuminates for us this picture of God as Father so beautifully. Let's look at Matthew 7, verses 9 to 11. That'll be up on the slide there. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Do you know you can ask God for anything. And he is the perfect father. What does that mean the perfect father does? Does it mean he, he gives you anything? No, not exactly. Sometimes growing up your impression is that someone else might have the best dad because their dad buys them all of the things <laughs> and gives them anything they ask for. And as we mature, we learn that that's maybe not what's actually best for them. But the beautiful picture here is that if we ask God for good things, of course he gives them because he knows what's good for us, because he loves us, because he cares for us better than our own dads, better than the best dad any one of us has ever had. God loves us. A little earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34, we have another fatherly image. Um, this is just from the end of it. I'm going, to, I'm going to paraphrase the larger passage because it is a bit bigger. Verses 25 to 34, we have another fatherly image uh, saying, do not be anxious about your needs for the father provides for the birds, provides for the plants, and you are more valuable than they are. Do you know that? That you are more valuable to God than the animals? 
than the trees. Us as a people, Jesus is talking about you individually are more valuable to God. And this ends with these, these verses, 32 to 33. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God has made you purposefully. The Father has a plan for you. And it's not a, a family business kind of plan where, uh, you know, I wasn't really created to run a bakery, and yet my dad wants me to. My dad's not a baker, but... Um, <clears throat> you know, you see that in movies, right? This is actually something we were created for. It's actually something that will satisfy us. And it's actually something that every other satisfaction we experience in the world, every other accomplishment is just a shadow of, is a satisfaction in our purpose in God to pursue him, to know him, to be like him. That the love that he has for us would overflow through us into and onto others. That he'd be glorified in all that we do. That people would experience his goodness through us. That people would come into his family because of us. Because of God's work in us. So there's this wonderful work. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. It doesn't say ye here. I'm just remembering the old, the old song, right? Um, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And whatever you need will be added unto you. That's a big promise that Jesus makes. It's kind of like, it's a little bit scary to, to preach from this passage. Because it's kind of like, okay, this is, this is a do this and get that. And Jesus himself gives it. Jesus says, because God is your father, because he loves you, Pursue him. Pursue what he has for all his creation. And he'll take care of the rest. This doesn't mean uh, you just disregard yourself or your own needs to, like, you know, just be an absolute bomb, just stink, right, and not take care of yourself at all. This, you know, I, like, I don't want... This could have been a whole sermon, and, and it's not going to be the whole sermon, but I don't want to, like... Leave us with a wrong impression there. Um, <laughs> part of pursuing God's kingdom is loving those around us. Part of loving those around us is taking care of ourselves as well, of course. But what I want you to come out of this with is uh, the um, faith to lean into the care of a father who loves you. And faith is possible not just because he exists but because Jesus explains his goodness and because Jesus explains the implications of his goodness for us to the point that you can say, seek God first. Seek his kingdom and you'll be taken care of. Now, helpful context here, of course, is we can look at the experiences of the apostles, uh, the missionaries of the early church, missionaries of, through all of history as well. Taking care of can look different to what you might hope for coming into Christianity or looking into Christianity from the outside, right?
just deciding if this is a, if this is a to live as die to get, die as to live as Christ to die as um, gain sermon. It's not. Let's. <laughs> I've got other stuff to talk about. But when we pursue first the kingdom of God, when we align our will to His and trust in Him to align our will to His, He provides everything we need to do so, to glorify Him as much as He will enable us to, and to ultimately enjoy eternity with Him. And so let's get to that eternity. Let's get to that everlastingness. We've been focusing on the fatherness. But the everlastingness is so important. Um, let's look at Isaiah 40, verses 27 to 31. That's right. Those are the first two verses, and it will go on to the next slide as I, as I read the next three. Isaiah 40, verses 27 to 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? These are the people of God. Why do you say, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. How good is that? God's provision is endless. His goodness doesn't run out. He strengthens from limitless stores of strength. Creating the whole universe didn't wear him out. He's just as powerful today. He'll be just as powerful when the last stars burn out. As big as the universe is, the hugeness that we can measure by science, it is measurable. And God is not. God is greater, bigger. God is before and after. God stretches out to infinity in time no, beyond time, because he created time. Isaiah here is asking, have you not heard that the Lord is everlasting? And because the Lord is everlasting, Isaiah is connecting God's everlastingness to the infiniteness of his power. Because God is everlasting, he's not going anywhere. He hears you. He's not wearing down. He's with you. God's attention is not spread thin, He's got you. I know what it feels like to not have enough in the tank to get to where I need to be. God will renew our strength. I say this even though one of my brothers currently has to spend more time in bed than out of it. Praise God, his health is improving. God is renewing his strength. I say this knowing others who have never in their lives seen their health improve. They've never had this physical restoration that they pray for, that they wait for. And they are remarkable examples of what it is to wait upon the Lord. 
knowing at the very least they'll have all of eternity to enjoy full restoration. In the meantime, God is still their strength. Since God is everlasting, we can count on him the same today as at any time in history. It's hard to imagine how big everlasting is, but uh, my oldest, Daniel, he's nearly five years old, he, he gave me something of an example a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, he's gotten really into this show, uh, both my oldest two, actually, have gotten really into this show called Number Blocks. Has anyone seen it? Does anyone know about it? Here we go, a couple. It is excellent. It's, it's a BBC show. It's, it's these blocks representing numbers that teach kids how to, um, how to count, also how to understand big numbers and how they relate to each other, how to add, how to multiply. And it's this beautiful thing. It's, it's really amazing seeing how, how much uh, my five-year-old and my three-year-old um, have engaged with it and learned from it. A few weeks ago, Gia, she's, she recently turned three. She came to me and said, Dad, 64 is a cube. Four by four by four. Yeah, okay. Yes, it is. Thank you for informing me, <laughs> my three-year-old. So Daniel was asking, Daniel's the oldest. He asked me, what's 10 times 1,000? Well, it's 10,000. And then he said, what's 10 times 10,000? 100,000. What's 10 times 100,000? I said, 1 million. And he, he kept on asking, kept on adding the tens, and, but also kind of saying the whole name of the number I just said. So I, I felt like he was learning something here. And we've done this a couple times. So we got into 1 million. Um, there we go. Kept on going, 10, 10, 10, 1 billion. Uh, we went into the trillions, quadrillions, quintillions. I had to Google it to be sure. Sextillions, septillions, octillions, nonillions, decillions. That's not where we stopped, but I'm getting less sure about the pronunciations of the next ones. <laughs> and it, for me, it was a huge picture of the bigness of everlasting. Because whatever, whatever word, whatever time frame you put after this number, God outlasts it. If you're talking about 999 decillion millennia, when that time passes, God will still be there. In the fullness of his strength, holding all of creation in his hands, sustaining everyone and everything in it, caring for each and every one of his children. Isn't that awesome? When you think about, like, um, so my kids, they don't even get one zero yet. When they hit ten, they'll get one zero. And that might be all they get. Most of us won't live to 100, right? And, and get the second zero. We think three zeros gives us sort of the order of magnitude of how long ago uh, Jesus came to earth. And four zeros kind of gives us um, like the, the very earliest records of, of civilized human history. And the, the scale is enormous, isn't it? And this isn't enough. No number's big enough to represent the everlastingness of God. So what does this mean for us? If God is our everlasting Father, that means we get to be His everlasting children. His everlastingness is not just 
that his children from millennia ago get to experience the same God in their short lives as we do, who get to experience the same God in our short lives as, as his children from millennia forward, and then, and then disappear. The everlastingness is something he gives to us as his children. Now, we get, we'll get into the how. Uh, I want to end the sermon on the how. So we'll get into that. But just take it for granted right now. If you're a child of God, if you're a, a son or daughter of the everlasting father, you are an everlasting child of God. Being an everlasting child of the everlasting father is huge. Um, because of this, we will outlast all trouble and anything that might have consumed us if we only... Um, yeah, we'll outlast all trouble and we'll outlast anything that might have consumed us if we only lived 100 years or so. As Jesus puts it in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, very famously, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We can call this an eternal perspective. What should I pursue? Where should my desires be? In my immediate gratification that I will fight for tomorrow and then fight for again the next day and again the next day? Should it be in wealth that I can't take with me? Should it be in possessions that will wear out, be stolen, fall apart? Should it be in fame or a legacy that actually, contrary to some popular belief in our culture, doesn't give us any more life after we die? Rather, let's store up treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven is the kingdom of God itself. It's people to enjoy God with. Is our brothers and sisters here and gathering elsewhere today and who are travelling for whatever reason, who haven't been in church yet, who don't know Jesus yet but will, if they will, then those are among the treasure of heaven that we can store up for ourselves. Jesus said, Oh, I, didn't, I don't have a reference for it, but Jesus said, use your resources that you have for today that will pass away to gain for yourself eternal resources, friends in heaven, brothers and sisters. The money that we have, the possessions that we have, the freedom that we have, they're not ours to do whatever with anyway. These are borrowed from God who's given them to us with a purpose that as many as possible would know his love, that as many as possible would be able to call themselves children of God and enjoy eternity with him. There's another side to this uh, eternal perspective. It's not just what we should pursue, but it's how we endure. Um, let's look at uh, Paul, what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18, which I'm sure I've already used in a sermon this year. Um, but it's so good. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Transient means temporary. They'll pass away. 
What are the things that are seen? The things that are seen are um, sickness. The things that are seen are poverty. The things that are seen are wickedness that we experience from other people. The things that are seen are unimaginable difficulties. And yet they're all temporary. They all fall in the scale of those one or two zeros. Compare, compare that to eternity, which doesn't run out of zeros. And each one of those zeros is a whole order of magnitude bigger than the last. So the bigness of eternity shrinks our sufferings today. And I don't need to draw from my experience or pretend I've had a terribly difficult life, but I can point to Paul, who is a been shipwrecked multiple times, serial prisoner, he's been beaten, he's been stoned and left for dead, he's been hungry and lacked. Hang on, he's got a, he's got a good one here. Philippians 4. Paul talk, talks about the, uh, the secret to contentment. Whether facing plenty or hunger, and Paul knew hunger. When he's facing abundance or need, and Paul knew need, he says he can get all he needs through Christ who strengthens him. Between the sufficient provision of God, his Father, miraculous, seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you, and the eternal perspective that makes the sufferings of this world, the difficulties of this world, shrink to basically nothing compared to eternity. Paul has what he needs to be content. Thank you, everlasting Father. In my limited experience, seasons of difficulty feel eternal when I'm in them. My wife and I did three years long distance before we married, not by choice. Um, it was visa stuff and passport stuff and, and it was just, it, we had no idea how long it was going to be, how long it was going to take to end. And it felt so huge. And when we finally, praise God, came out of that season and were able to, Trippie was able to come into Australia, we got to get married. Um, we told each other that we'd never forget how long that was, how difficult that was. We won't take for granted how wonderful it is to be able to be together. And we won't forget it, but nevertheless, it looked immediately so small in retrospect. Objects in the rearview mirror are larger than they appear, right? <laughs> Once they're behind you, it seems so much smaller. And as everlasting children of God, all difficulty will be behind us. So, the big question. If you're not already one of God's children, how do you get in on this? How does one be sure you're an everlasting child of the everlasting Father? And this is answered in this famous verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's all it took not to diminish how big it was for Jesus to become a man. Although in the beginning, all made to be in relationship with God, humanity rebelled against him, rejected him. God found faithful people to call his own, Abraham and his descendants. God made promises to them. God was their father and they were his children, but they were unfaithful to him. Nevertheless, he protected them. Nevertheless, he brought them back to himself and he promised them a saviour. Jesus is that saviour. 
And Jesus is that Savior, not just to make this people group God's children, but that people from all nations would be able to be God's children. Anyone and everyone without restriction. What does it take? Believe in Jesus. Most of this room knows this. I know. But this is, this is the crux of Christianity. This is the keys to the kingdom. This is how you get into the kingdom that we are to seek. This is an invitation to anyone and everyone to be everlasting children of God. Whoever believes in Jesus gets to be part of God's family. And why is Jesus the key? Not, it, it, a big part of it is because of what he did. He came to earth and he died. He took on the punishment for our sins so that unholy, broken people can be in the presence of holy God, can enjoy a relationship with perfect God so that justice and mercy would come together. Jesus was raised to eternal life so that he will continue to be our everlasting father, human and God. But also, because anyone who rejects Jesus is rejecting God. Jesus has to be the key. Jesus came to be known personally. The people would know their everlasting Father. And so those who rejected Jesus rejected God. And those who accepted Jesus accepted God. If you're here and you haven't accepted Jesus, really glad you're here. I think we usually have non-Christians in the room um, and it's great that you keep coming. This is an invitation to everlasting life. Do you believe in the saving power of Jesus, the Son of God? That's all it takes. To believe in the saving power of Jesus, the Son of God. I hope today um, you're all the more in awe of God the everlasting. All the more delighting in God the best dad and trusting that God the best dad is delighting in you. He delights in me in spite of being imperfect. Far from perfect. I hope you're looking forward to eternity in the care of Jesus and that as you do, momentary afflictions shrink away in comparison to the bigness of eternity. I hope you're able to draw on your experience of the best fathers and mothers or father figures and mother figures and find relief in a God who listens and cares and provides and loves perfectly. And I hope if any of you are not yet calling Jesus Lord, I hope you see his beauty, his reality, his necessity and know that now is as good a time as any to recognise him as God. It will never be too soon.